Hello! Right on time there. <laughs> I'm syncopated. Uh, good morning. Good afternoon. Good evening, everyone. Um, this is Mike Donahue, and you're listening to Tilting at Windmills. Uh, we have a website now called tiltatwindmills.com. I'm a little worried about the grammatical changes and variants, but tilt at windmill seems like it's tilting. Everybody knows it's tilting at windmills, um, but the domain is taken, and the only domain I could get was tilt at windmills. So I'm, I'm struggling. It's an existential crisis. Alan, what do you think? Is it Would it throw you <laughs> off? No, completely? it's not going to throw me off at all. I think a lot of uh, companies had to rebrand after they realized that their site was <laughs> already gone. So Oops. whatever Nissan. Google was before, everybody's fine. So For, for, for a good time, go to Nissan.com yeah. um, <laughs> and uh, check that out. Anyway, hello, Alan. Welcome to the Tilt at Windmills podcast. How are you? I'm doing great. Good, good um, for, oh, no, sure. You're paying me. I'll, I'll do anything for a buck. Uh, so Alan is a very long time, uh, first a coworker and then a, a friend. And uh, and he is a entrepreneur. He is a coach, uh, football and baseball, and probably uh, soccer somewhere along in there. <laughs> Uh, and uh, uh, an entrepreneur and a father of, sorry, a father of four. And four. yeah, living Two up in of the, which, when yes. I told them yesterday I was going to be on the podcast, they thought that was the coolest thing ever. So <laughs> they're both podcast listeners. And so they thought, wow. And then the youngest said, well, is it like a real podcast? <laughs> like it's working on becoming a real podcast. So Out. you can know that's, that's, and that's the truth of a, uh, of a, seventh grader right yeah right at you um i got accepted today to the google play store so i guess google nice. which i didn't even know they had a podcast section so uh shows you about my marketing efforts and then itunes i think uh as soon as they count the number of swear words uh itunes is supposed to get back to me with a uh thumbs up or thumbs down well that's that's a lot of pressure on me because uh Don't i am known to be called when needed so you already had laura scarcega on and uh if anybody broke the quota uh it was her in a good way okay okay I'll so, try to be careful so you're you're a bit uh of a unique guy you're in many respects you're a lot like me demographically um you're i'm, I'm 40 you're something rich white guy yeah. <laughs> 40, 40 something. Can, I am 51. Jesus Christ, Alan. When did that happen? Yeah, I don't know. Uh, <laughs> you are a 40 something yeah. white guy. Uh, and you've been, you were raised very conservative, right? You had a conservative sort of upbringing. No, no, no? actually the opposite. Oh. Um, I was raised by poor liberal hippies that moved from their conservative upbringings in the South to San Francisco. Oh, um, they had me at 18. And so I grew Wait, up. They had you at 18. Yes. How does that so work? I was um, <laughs> usually in the back of a VW bug, but. Oh no. Oh, I, they so were 18. That, yes. <laughs> so they were 18. Um, so I was very much unplanned, and when I was three, they picked up in a literal VW bug and moved across and decided to move to San Francisco 
where I proceeded to live in a hundred different poor places with 50 people hanging around and doing drugs and doing all that. And then somehow out of that, I ended up becoming this flat top NFL fan, football, baseball, basketball player that ended up coaching. And so I, I definitely don't look like where I came from, which is right. probably why people. But when we first met, you were kind of conservative. Definitely. Yeah. Um, and I would consider myself moderate and continually to be pushed away from the right because it was, I was never conservative in the way that I see now, which is racist and xenophobic and sexist and all those things. I was more, you know, what used to be called the compassionate conservative, the Reagan conservative. Uh, exactly. And the, you know, we're, we're trying to raise everybody up and, you know, and certainly I, to me politically, the, the, besides all of the, awful awful divide now what i would like to get back to is everything now is just this ridiculous finger pointing it's like let's get back to actually discussing ideas because there are economic ideas that are worth discussing and it also depends on what the time is you know what the right answer at the end of the depression isn't necessarily the right answer in 2018 you know there's i think there's room for intelligent debate we just don't seem to get much of it. Anymore. Well, you are. That's a little bit off topic, but that's. You that's are in luck today because as, yes. as my fans, both of them will tell you, <laughs> I will argue the crap out of anything. Like literally just because I'm a rabble rouser, um, provocateur slash bedwetting liberal. So um, I, if you, you know, I can give you that. I will, I will. And, and the, the weird thing, I'm always right which is, it's sort of like a, a repeating beautiful cycle of happiness just to, to constantly be debating, but always yet be right. Um, so well, I'm aware of that because you and I have had many of these debates over the years. If we got onto the JFK topic, this would probably <laughs> be a 19-hour podcast and we would both end up thinking like we finally convinced the other person how wrong they were so we'll, let's hear clear yes. from jfk yes i don't think i don't think we'll ever get to the bottom of that between the two of us it's actually quite unnerving that you and i agree so much now like it is when we worked together i was a lot more conservative and so you and i argued a lot more yes but unfortunately we find ourselves of a similar mind more often than not. Now. Yeah. Kind of boring. We need, it yeah, is. it is. Um, <laughs> we don't, and we don't have to talk about JFK. We can talk about his um, brother who's currently running for Senate in Texas. But um, <laughs> yeah, if we, if we let's, let's, let's kick it off with our standard. What are you reading? Uh, and we have to do this quickly because, because I've been boring everyone for eight minutes now. Um, what are you what are you reading or what are you watching that you highly highly recommend to the audience all right so i'll go quickly i am a passionate reader it's my number one thing I, and my wife reads but she does this thing where she like starts a book and she finishes it i'm always in the middle of a hundred different books so the two things that i'm really enjoying right now is gridiron genius which is michael lombardi a guy that had uh coached with bill walsh and then coached with belichick and so he's got a really good um 
perspective on on football and leadership and so that's that's always interesting to me and then i just finished the everything trump touches dies which is rick wilson longtime republican operative uh who instead of going out of the salacious details and it came out the same week as omarosa so that was unfortunate so it kind of got lost in that but um, instead of getting into the, he said this and he did this ridiculous tweet, it's more like, let's talk about this policy and how this differs and gets away from everything we said the Republican platform was. So I found that logical and interesting. Um, and then I didn't read the Woodward book because I didn't want to speak another, I didn't want to spend another week in, in Trump's it get, world. It gets tiring, um, doesn't it? And then I have to see the one last thing as I have to say Hamilton. And I know it's, it's one of those things. Ed so too. I, I've never enjoyed a, I've never enjoyed a Broadway play in my life. Um, I actually famously got up at the first intermission of Les Mis because I thought it was over. It was <laughs> over there's, there's two more of these. So, um, and I like hip hop, but I like, old 80s hip-hop like that i grew up with um i don't really know any of the new stuff um but i do love history and had read the hamilton book my wife was super passionate about going we went when we were in new york this year it was one of the most amazing things i've ever seen i've listened to the to the soundtrack 150 times i know every word we're going back in november in chicago but hamilton without a doubt one of the best things everybody should watch it but and and everybody should know for my listeners, if you haven't discerned already, his voice matches his appearance. Right? <laughs> he he is that. Um, yeah, he looks like he came from West Texas, uh, and uh, yeah, he's he's a football coach, and that's uh, so. Whatever stereotypical thoughts you want to apply to him, I'm sure I'm sure they fit. Um, but you, I got a flat top in 1982 at lunchtime, and it's never changed. I get the same haircut every two weeks. Zero on the side, nice and square. Never, ever changes. <laughs> every two but, weeks? Are you Sasquatch? Every two weeks. What's going on there? I get No, I get annoyed if it goes to three weeks. It's like almost an inch long. It drives me crazy. I can't stand it. I have to go. We still have some differences. Yeah. Oh, we still have some differences. Yeah. <laughs> um, so, so you're one of the reasons I wanted to talk to you today is uh, you're you're in a pretty unique position um, because, from what I understand, you you coach at two high schools. Uh, one of them is uh, Pittsburgh, and the other one is Heritage. And and for the listeners out there, I'll just let you take a wild guess as to which one's the rich kid school and which <laughs> one's the quote unquote urban school. Um, and and how how far apart are the high schools? Uh, geographically only 15 miles apart but it is really a world apart yeah so um so pittsburgh is it is an old it's an old steel mill town now it's pittsburgh without an h for some reason we decided we're not gonna have an h in it and pittsburgh does have steel mills it's right along the delta it's i mean we've been playing football pittsburgh since 1928 um but it's an extremely ethnically diverse city and school. Um, it's a beautiful school. It's recently been rebuilt, uh, famous for the band, famous for all kinds of stuff. Uh, education is a super big deal. But from 
people who are outside looking in that maybe only live, and I call it like the white NPR world, right? And they're only living in that. They see it, and it's and it's like, okay, these kids look scary. They have beyond beyond uh, Thunderdome. Yeah, it's just like and. So for me, talking about my upbringing, being so poor, we actually lived in a really poor neighborhood in San Francisco. And so I grew up used to being around everybody and having parents that were of the liberal hippie Ben. They had friends of every. So it just never occurred to me that that wasn't just normal. Right. And in my sophomore, my junior year in high school, I moved to Walnut Creek, which was extremely white, upper middle class. And that was a real culture shock for me. I was just like, well, this is weird. I've never seen so many white people. I've never, never seen kids are driving BMWs. It's like everybody I knew, including the adults, all have rode the bus back where I came. So it was that was such an interesting culture shock. So in coaching at Pittsburgh, and I've been there now, this is my 17th year there, um, from day one, that was comfortable to me. I've, you know, there's every single race, everything on our coaching staff, on our team, and it's, we're, we, we're kind of like a Texas town, as far as football goes, in the middle of California. It's Football is king at Pittsburgh. We you know we have the biggest stadium. We get five, six thousand people to come to a game. It's a huge deal, and everybody in town cares about and talks about football above all else in Pittsburgh. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's been a great experience for me. I love every second there. Now we live fifteen miles away in Brentwood, and when we moved here. It was an economic move. We 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 had a nine hundred square foot house in the center of Rome. We got a three thousand square foot house for the same amount of money out here. It's it's you know, it's a commute and it's better now because the freeways have been extended, but back then it was a lot longer to get out here. And when we came here there was thirty thousand people. Now there's a hundred thousand. There was one high school, now there's three. So heritage is this relatively new school, maybe ninth, tenth year. Um, my kids went there. Um, your, it's the one your, that's right. Your kids are white. My kids are white. Upper, um, upper, <laughs> upper, upper middle. Definitely. Yeah. Yeah, definitely upper class. Um, they have their own cars. They, they're going to college. It's all being paid for all that, you know? So yeah, they definitely come from privilege. And my son, my oldest son, who's now 20, was primarily a baseball player. Um, he played football and he, he loves football, but he just the way he, he was small when he, like he grew late. Now he's, you look at him, you never know, but when he, so he, he primarily went baseball and all sports. We can even get to that later or year round now, even starting when they're like eight years old. Um, but so I started helping there and now I never want to coach my own kids. So I always coach away from them in high school. Like if they're at this level, I coach at that level. Uh, so I've been coaching baseball at Heritage now for six years. And it's 15 miles apart, but it couldn't be more different. <laughs> you know, it's like there's always exceptions to that on both sides. It's it's not as stereotypical as it sounds, but it it's certainly a pretty different thing from one school to the sure so so let's try and because as you know you know sports sports touches everything race touches everything education touches everything and and so i think there's a a lot that we can probably mine here but i think i think one of the biggest issues that i have when i'm trying to talk to people who don't 
share my perspective on on sort of race and and where we are as a society. You know, one of the biggest things is is trying to get across the concept of of either white privilege or the fact that you know what there is such a thing as systemic racism and we are still uh, fighting through it, right? So you know, you hear the thing. I'm sure you've heard this a million times. You know, I didn't own any slaves. You know, we they got freed 250 years ago. Why are they still whining? Um, you know, et cetera. They, if I, if you took me and stuck me in that same school, you know, they had the exact same opportunities we did, yada, 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 yada. And, and so I'm, I guess I'm looking to you for some sort of help with, you know, and, and, and I think the, one of the common denominators through this, and I'm sure we're going to come back to this is that they don't have a lot of exposure, um, to, to other cultures, but, from from your perspective, how do you respond, or how would you respond to uh, someone talking about things that way? So I think there's a there's a couple of different things. There's the the political how do we address some of these things, which is not my area. I'm not an expert at that. I I follow it. I listen to it. I don't know what the answer is. Um, but I, I just, I just want to get to acknowledgement that there's a problem because we're not even at the oh, sure. acknowledging there's a problem yet. Um, yeah, well, but that probably is a political thing, political thing in that those that acknowledge the problem want to do something about it. And those that deny the problem and, and we can just that go about which channel you're watching. Right. But, um, for me, it's more on a, on a personal level and, I, you know, because of my existence, um, you know, because I also, you know, like I said, I have my business. My wife uh, is an executive for a big company. She's on the board for City of Hope, a cancer research thing that we just went to. It's like we, you know, I was at a black tie event last Tuesday and there last Saturday. And then I went back to practice at at our school on Monday. It's so I kind of float in and out of these worlds. And I do hear some of these perspectives from both sides. Um, I think it comes down to personal experience and, you know, it's an old cliche, but if, if you spent time with people, and it's one of the reasons I love sports is that it's very hard to be a racist, awful person and then go and say, you know, blacks are inferior, but Michael Jordan's the best at basketball. That That's not very logical. And you found it in like through the military and, and guys that would go and be in the military together all of a sudden realized, oh, this person of this other race, whatever it is, wasn't like I thought. And racism goes both ways. I mean... There's the the players, and I and I'm not using that in the typical defense. Like you know, they're racist too. That's not that's not what I'm saying. What I'm saying is, there are players that look at me that don't know who I am, and until they get to know and they realize who I am and what I'm about, and then I'm not going to treat anybody different based upon what they are, and that's just normal to me. Then they're going to let their guard down. But if you just see me step out of the thing, I I look like I could have been on Fox News last night, right? And that's very clearly not who I am, but it is what I look like. Um, And so, and it's not that uncommon for football, but it's the players have to know that they can trust you. And so I think the more that people spend time around people, that's really 
the solution, how we convince people to do that, I'm not sure. You well, know? but it's it's getting harder and harder. So, like, and, and, sure. and just for your own sort of situation as an example, you have these two communities, um, Brentwood and Pittsburgh, and geographically yes. they're they're 15 miles apart. But the overlap, the Venn diagram of interaction between those two cities is is probably pretty limited, right? For the most part, it is. Um, I think that uh, has changed somewhat over the years and not, not enough, but it's through usually through things like popular music and through sports and through where people like, cause if you're growing up and you're a super privileged white kid and, and your favorite rapper is, um, I don't know, Jay-Z, I don't, it shows you how much I'm not in with who's the most, I'm sure he is far from the most famous, but uh, it's like Travis Scott. <laughs> okay. There you go. So that's, it's like, that at some point you start to, whether you go to a concert, you have a friend, especially with online communities, there's, there's more exposure to cross culture. And I do think with each passing generation that that lessens a little bit, you know, my kids have kind of had a unique experience because despite being here in Brentwood and being affluent, they've also gone to Pittsburgh football practice since they could walk and they've run around. And so that's just normal to them. It never occurred to them. Like when they hear people being racist, obnoxious, they're like, what are you doing? Which is what a, what a normal national rational person does say, but some people are just so siloed in their lives that they never get a chance to be around people that are not like them. But, and so, but are you saying then it's trending in a positive direction or were you saying it's trending I actually down? Do think, no, I think it's trending in a positive direction. And one, I'm naturally an optimistic person. I tend to try to find the optimistic in most things because I just, to me, that's a better way to live. You can constant, you know, you can look around you and you can see a billion good things and a million bad things, but you have to find, you know, the things that you want to concentrate on. So that's, that's my thing. The other part is like, if we really think about how it's at its worst, it's, it's where we are politically and people who kind of get in their silo of information. They only watch Fox news. They only watch MSNBC. They only listen to NPR. They only go to whatever. And, And so that's definitely bad, but most of that demographic is older. Even my, the kids at heritage that would be the quote unquote privileged, rich white kids. I mean, it's not as though we're 90% white. We have, there is increasing ethnic diversity in Brentwood and there through culture, through YouTube, through music and all that. I think the white, the younger white, white kids have been listening to black music for 60 years now. Uh, uh, a billion years. Sure. Of course. Um, but I think, I don't know, like before, you know, the, the same people that are watching Fox, they might have listened to Motown, but did they go to the concert? Did they watch it and interact with other people on YouTube about it? Right. I would say no. I'd say they got their 45. They went, this is great. If only Pat Boone would do a version of it. And then, you know, <laughs> but now I think there's a lot more of seeing the artist. Like if you, if you, you're a, kid you know 50 years ago when you listen to Motown 
you probably know they were black, but you don't necessarily see that, right? Yeah. A lot of that was on the radio. Now everything is on YouTube. Everything is so. I do think that there, and, and, and to me, the answer is always exposure and the point where somebody realizes, you know, I, I, guess, I guess most of us are the same. I guess my pushback on this is, and I think I think what I've observed, which is a pretty pretty limited exposure is that I think generationally the younger kids are less uh, instant haters, right? There's there's not as much sort sure. of uh, aggression or uh, looking down on other people. I think gener- generational as a very, very general rule. But I th- I would agree with that 100%. But I think, I think that this greater trend that we have that you're talking about, about this, you know, the balkanization and, or, or the segmenting into silos and because it's not only thought silos now because of the economic disparity in the country, we're starting to get into these economic silos, right? Where, sure. where so-and-so only shops at Whole Foods, right? And, and everybody else shops at Vons. And just in that ever expanding, like, like places where we used to have to meet, whether it was church or the grocery store or the pharmacy or whatever, we don't, we don't have to mix anymore. Um, and, and I, I, I think I'm worried that, that, you know, even though generationally there's, there seems to be less sort of embedded, uh, discomfort of, of, with of people with different color skins that, that functionally we're, we are creating, um, sometimes, and sometimes these are just economic barriers that, you know, that, that these are being created. Um, so anyway. No, I think I think you're exactly right, and that is true. Um, but the, again, my optimistic counter is: yes, we don't meet at the grocery store in the same way that when I was young and I wanted to play basketball on the weekend, or I wanted to play, I went to the park and people showed up. My kids went to the park now to play. There'd be nobody there. Right? That's, that's, that's not the way kids play anymore, but they do interact online. And of course there's a lot of negative and you, you know, every time you hear somebody talk about Twitter and social media, it's all negative. I would argue it's not all negative. I, there's plenty of negative, but there's plenty of positive too. And so I think if you're a kid that's living in a place that would never have exposure to anything other than the culture that they're there, you can go and experience, if you wanted to be interested in Indian Bollywood movies, you could go and find that, which just wasn't going to be an experience no matter how open-minded you were in the past. I love, I love Indian so, Bollywood. Okay, and I, I, and I, I have never seen them, but I, <laughs> but I, I understand they're popular. But, but to get to get back to that real question, you have you have someone standing in front of you, or you're at your black tie, you know, VIP yeah. white people cancer event, and 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 they're just sitting there going, I I do not know why, you know, they're talking about increasing the the food stamp you know, distribution or, or they'll say, can you believe that you can buy Coke with food stamps? It's ridiculous. It should only be orange sure. juice and milk. How do- so that, that event's probably the wrong one because it's 
in California, in San Francisco, and, and, and you, you probably know about you know, it. I, I do know what you're talking about. What do you so say to those people? Funny. Like, if because I know, I know the the general thought for, from your mind and my mind is just we just nod and say, okay, yeah. Uh, how about them um, chargers? Well, and so sure, what do you? What would is, you say? In so, in any individual. Um, in any individual encounter, you always have to measure how much am I willing to engage in this but, debate, right? Let's just and, go and hypothetical. I'm measure, just, no. So, so yeah. hypothetical. So I'll actually give you, this is a better than the charity events. I, we talked about my haircut, right? Every two weeks, go to the same place. And it, if you looked at this barbershop, it looks like it could have been in the fifties. It's been there forever. Tiny thing. And it definitely as a crowd leans right. <laughs> and I find myself frequently having to just, I don't really want to get into a giant debate at the barbershop, but there's stuff that, that I hear that is just beyond thing. And it's usually that kind of thing. Can you believe this and that? And, um, at something, uh, some conversation came up about the homeless situation in San Francisco. And, and, you know, we had had this trip to go to New York this year, and had remarked about how clean. Now, some of it was where we stayed in New York. We were down in Battery Park. But New York was extremely clean, and there was not a lot of homeless. And then we went to this event Saturday in San Francisco, and the homeless problem is a problem. Now, because it does, definitely doesn't feel safe, is this conversation happening at the barbershop it start, you know, the, the the mood of the room leans to the, yeah, they need to do this and that and all of those things. And I said, yeah, but from a compassionate Christian perspective, what, how do we help these people? How do we get from things? So that's, that's usually where I try to go is not to be confrontational. Cause I think most people, when you're confrontational, just get defensive. Um, and this is also a 50 year old person saying that it wasn't like, in the past, I probably would have gotten into an argument. And now I realize how pointless that is. So I try to like shed a little light into something that they should agree with, right? Coming from quote unquote, their perspective. Okay. But so, I, I don't know how so you're either, you're is. either decking my question or I'm really, really bad at asking it. If no, I don't try that back specifically. So I'm not running for any office. So there's, there's no reason <laughs> for me to duck anything. I, I'm looking to answer it square up. Uh, me use big boy words. Yeah. Um, so specifically to racism, though, because I think that is the big bugaboo that it's really hard to get that that concept across. How, like, how is is there any sort of tangible take back from from your having a foot sort of in in these two worlds as much as you can, anyway? About about explaining that that yeah, systemic racism is a thing, and and here's here's why, and here's here's what certain communities go through that you just have no clue about. So maybe it's my own. Or is that not, is that just not feasible? No, that's not that. It's that, so maybe it's my own silo of being in California of a lot of people know my reputation of where I coach, but I don't really experience that kind of overt racism anymore. I remember hearing it when I was younger and especially like you'll watch old movies or something. And you're like, Oh wow. I can't believe they said stuff. And, and it's so 
I, I rarely get overt racism. I'll get the casual racism of like, oh, how how do you coach in Pittsburgh? Like, are you worried about taking your kids there? That's that's kind of the casual system. Of course, right. I'm not worried about taking my kids there. Why would I be worried? Because some of the people's pigment is darker than mine. I and and well, but so I'm not. Yeah. So, so yeah. Have you have you heard about Mike Donahue's scale o racism? I have not heard about the Mike Donahue scale racism. I'm interested in the. Sorry. Yeah, I'm. I'm again trying to thinking about maybe not having my name on it, but so like. <laughs> So you have an R1 to an R10 okay. and an R1, you can't go low. You, that is your genetic built-in discrimination or prejudice. Just Charlotte if I see so. something who doesn't look like exactly like me, I'm going to have my filter up to sure. the R10, which is where you're basically, um, you know, throwing nooses up over trees. And, oh, so the and, opposite. And, so R10 is the Charlottesville and then R1 is the totally. Okay. Well, the Charlottesville guys were probably like R8s. And and obviously there's like you can go way be, but it stops at 10. Right. And I think I think what what happens and what I struggle with. So me and most of my friends, like I would probably put myself at like an R3 or an R4. I don't I don't know where I am, but I'm sure I'm probably more unconsciously racist than I would admit to or sexist. Um that's a whole another fun topic. Sure. But I know people that are R5, R6, R7s that, and to me in that range, those are people that they'll drop the end bomb. Um, they'll rant and rave about, you know, affirmative action being the worst thing ever. Um, you know, they'll, they, they have that, that mindset. And I think sure. in my head, you know, what, what do you, I'm so not, I think based upon my experience, I tend to, interact with people that are somewhere between the R1 and the R5. And I think some of that is California because you don't tend to get enough that they don't exist, but it, it, it's in a, it's also in this modern, I don't ever really experience that overt racism anymore. No, no. I hear the N word 5,000 times a day. <laughs> I personally never say it because I grew up saying you don't say it. And Every one of my kids, when I've took them to practice, I said, all right, well, you're going to hear words, including this, that you're never going to repeat. It's not okay to say this, but it's also not our part to say you can't say that. It is so part of the lexicon amongst the youth and in Pittsburgh, where, like I said, we have this ethnic diversity, but it's also we very have very few people that are white or black or Hispanic. We have everybody who's a third this and two fourths that, and there's a lot of very mixed thing. And everybody, including the players that are white, say it as a natural form of communication. Um, and that's just something that I don't, you know, my only way to, to deal with it is to ignore it. It's like, all right, that's what's said, but I personally don't ever feel but, comfortable saying it. But so, I think our but, challenge, like the R, the R7s and 8s and 9s and 10s, there's nothing really to be done with those folks. All, sure, because they're not going to be convinced. Yeah. They're not going to be convinced, and the best thing we can do is just let them die off. Like they're, yes. you know, it's whatever. But I think there's, I think a lot of America, in fact, I might even go so far as, as the bulk of America are, are in that R4 to R6 range um, where, you know, if, if, and, and I have to, I guess I have to come up with examples, but again, they don't believe in affirmative action. Um, they don't, 
if if they're going through a stack of resumes and they see Malik Jackson uh, as a name, they'll just keep going. Um, sure, it's it's the stuff, and 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 maybe they would, you know, they'll tell people, you know, or they have black friends at work, or you know, um, you know, they'll never they'll never drop the n bomb, and and they'll keep saying everybody's equal. But then they'll say everybody's equal, and that's why we don't have to give anyone else a break, or that's why we don't have to help bootstrap up other people. And I just, I'm, 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 I'm kind of dying here on this question, and maybe it was just a horrible question. But how do we, how do we convince? No, those it's not. People? I how understand. We, I understand what you're driving at. Is how do we get? How do we turn the sixes into fours and the and the fours into twos? And I, I would say we. It, you know, going back to the way I talk about it, I don't think you can legislate that. I think that's a cultural thing that happens through all of these things, whether it's sports or music or interaction. And, you know, the more people spend, you know, we sit here and we're, we're talking very specifically about black versus white racism. You know, racism exists all over the place. Japanese and Chinese people are racist to each other and to Americans, they all look Asian, right? But that doesn't mean that racism doesn't exist. It's all over the world. And it's really the tribalism where people are scared of what they're not. One, what they're not used to, and two, what the other leaders in their community are using to leverage and make them afraid of, right? So I think that, and again, in my small little tiny slice of the world, I, I try to impact people and bring as many people as I can together. You know, I don't have a black friend. I interact with people of all races on a daily basis. It's I don't, I don't really think about it that way, but I know plenty of friends that I'm not racist. I have three black friends and that, and yeah. they mean it sincerely, yeah. but they just don't live. They just don't live in a world, their daily world. They go to work. They're not the one that's not hiring Malik Jackson. So Malik Jackson never gets there and they never get to meet him. Well, I've met a million Malik Jacksons and 20% of them are awful assholes who you wouldn't want to spend time with, but 20% of them are the greatest people you've ever met in, in the world. And, and the fact that that's their name or the way they look is just a minor inconsequential detail. I know it's not inconsequential to the way that the world treats them, but it is to me because of my interaction. And I think the more people that have that interaction, the better off we are. Yeah. Is, I wish I had a better answer. On that's how okay. To, no, it's, that, it, it, I, if it's, I did, then <laughs> I could be in charge of everything, but how, I don't how, have a better answer. How do you answer. solve that one? How do you solve racism, Alan? And, and people yeah, <laughs> I, I mean, and but your yeah, your whole answer. thing is just exposure, which is which is I think a pretty common sort of thing. Is is you know fear? Like I understand that someone in the backwoods of Alabama is terrified of Muslims, right? They've sure. Never, they've never seen one. They've never met one. They've never talked to one. Um, so sure, they're all running around with backpacks full of explosives. Sure. Um, but I don't. I think. I think. There's opportunities for people. And I think, and, and and this is gonna sound, I don't know if this is gonna sound bad or not, but I think TV and film have done a lot in terms of um getting more people of color and and women into roles uh that aren't 
that quote unquote stereotypical, you know, huggy bear Absolutely. from Starsky and Hutch kind of roles. The wire is the greatest thing I've ever seen. I mean, that, I've seen it five times through and I, I encourage everybody to watch it because in the wire you have <laughs> everybody's conflicted and there's very few just good or bad people. And, and, you know, and I, it's like the only cop show I ever watched. I could care less about that genre. And it took me a while to get to it. But once I got to it, it's just like, I'm blown away with how good that is. So I agree with you. That's, that's the kind of thing that you need to, that the more people have exposure, even at that level, because if right. you are that person in the small town in Alabama, the only exposure you have is the football team, right? And it's like, you actually have to have interactions with people. And then that's when people start realizing that they're not. And it, and it works both ways, too. There's plenty of black kids that are terrified of white kids because all they see is the stuff on TV of the cops and you know, the Trayvon Martin deals and that kind of an issue. And it's not as though they don't they're not just as fearful and misunderstanding of of another person. Right. Um so I, you know, like I said, I think the only, the only answer is more exposure and fully recognizing that I live in a silo here in California. Yeah, um, that's true. I think the one experience that I have that's different is because I'm, you know, walking in the corporate world and in this, in this high school thing. And then also because of the way I look most people would assume that I'm sexist and racist and homophobic and all that. And I'm none of that. I, I really, I have no issue with anybody of any kind and, you know, so, but that's something that's come from living here. I mean, even growing up in San Francisco, the, the homophobic slurs and the stuff you would hear as a kid growing up was normal, even here. And now it's just not accepted. And, you know, occasionally a kid will say, and we're like, hey, knock it off. That's like the, and, you know, I, even <laughs> living in San Francisco, I didn't have a great exposure to gay people because people didn't feel comfortable being open. But now I know lots of gay people and they're married. And again, people are people. You, you have three, <laughs> three gay friends. Um, yeah, I, I do. So <laughs> I have a black female friends. How about that? <laughs> oh, bingo. Um, so, so one of the things I think one of the big differences, maybe you can speak to this. When I was, when I was going through high school, which was around the same time you were, we were brutal to each other. And I get the feeling that kids aren't quite as brutal to each other. And I don't know if that's true or not, but like, it's not true at all. They're just, as they're bad just as brutal. Um, even even I like handicapped think, kids. No, I think everybody's just as yeah. It's it's there's there's still the general busting each other's balls, and there's the general um, there's always the bullying, and there's always the the different cliques and classes. I think all of that is true. Um, what's weird is I think the one group that doesn't get picked on anymore is the nerds because it used to be. If you played video games, you were some kind of a weirdo. Right. 
and now if you're at school and you don't play video games, you're probably some kind of a weirdo. Like every, all those kids play video games. So, but kids are extremely brutal and, and it's really junior high is even worse than the high schools. So the junior high have, you know, they have all the hormones, but none of the maturity. So they're really mean to each other, yeah. <laughs> but the high schoolers definitely thing, but then they also, they know how to act around adults and then they, I hear them when they think they're not supervised. Right. So, right. um, so they're, but, they're getting smarter. Yeah, yeah, definitely. So how, how, how about, um, cause we talked about it, like we talked about sports and, and, um, the different roles that different sports play and, and, um, different high schools. How, how different is the attitude generally towards sports and participating in sports between Pittsburgh and heritage? Is, is there a difference? There's a, there's a huge difference. And, um, I, I, I would argue that this is more specific to the schools than to any sort of a race relation or socioeconomic or anything. Um, I've said it before. Pittsburgh is very much like a Texas town stuck in the middle of California. Football is king at Pittsburgh, unlike it is at other schools. And, you know, uh, you read all this stuff, and again, in kind of the liberal silo, that football's going away, it's down, this thing is like, not here, it's not. If you go to Texas, there's still 100 kids showing up. If you go to Pittsburgh, there's still, it's, it's, it is, there is nothing about it that is done. People are in football places. There's nobody afraid to send their kid but, to football. But is that, that's, that's is it. that what it is? Because the liberal in me says it's because sports there are viewed as a way out. And a way to provide for your family, whereas in the white school, well, it's it, not. If, if they're if they're viewed that way, we let them know right away that's nonsense. It, less than one percent of the kids will ever be the meaningless last guy cut on hard knocks. That is not what team sports is. Team sports is a way to sacrifice, learn hard work, being you know bigger than yourselves. All those things. It's like. You look at De La Salle, this is right down the road. What, like four players of their 30-year run have gone to the NFL? The way out is nonsense. That's a, that's that's not at all the way you would do it. If you really cared about a way out, there's a much better path of going to class and learning math and science than there is of of becoming but the stereo- one of those rare people. The stereotype is, though, is, is that those kids don't the, – the, well, and, and I say those kids, meaning I meant black athletes, but the reality is probably almost any really super gifted young athlete that they don't believe, though. They don't believe that the stats apply to them, that they're going to be that, that one. But everybody, everybody thinks that, but that's not really the ultimate motivation to why they play. Okay. Um, because – it, the you can delude yourself. It's it's almost like buying a lottery ticket, right? It's like you really are buying a lottery ticket. But if you every time you went to buy a lottery ticket, you had to get at six a.m. and lift weights, and you had to run all these laps, and you had to do it eleven months out of the year, and you had to do all this stuff, and you had to get marked up by, would you buy that many lottery tickets? It's like it's not the lottery ticket. It's it's that we convince them there's something more about it than just that 
that rare opportunity to get that lottery, right? It's, it's again, it's, it's being a part of the community and it still does matter at school. If you're on the football team, you still get to wear your Jersey and people still look up at you and girls still pay that much more attention to you. Those kind of a things. I think those are the real reasons people do it and pressure from parents and, and everything else. But I would say that's the motivation at both schools. Far what, what percentage of your um, football team at uh, the players on the football team at Pittsburgh, what percentage of them do you think on, think internally that, that they have a good shot at going pro? Oh, less than 1%. <laughs> no, no, that they. Oh, that the, they the players, think? That um, they think. How many players, if we did a survey of the players on the team, oh. how many of them would, would say that, yeah, I think I have a decent chance of making it? All of them, but that includes the kids that are ninth string at their own school. So <laughs> that's a level of delusion. Okay. I don't think okay. that, that, but I, I think but that's let me, true. So let me, but let that's me ask true the person this. singing on YouTube who's trying to become the next Beyonce. They, they think that too. I think that's true of, of everybody's. Well, it's, it's, well, yeah. And let's not compare it to my growth to number one on the iTunes okay. podcast charts. Yeah. All right. <laughs> but, so let me ask you the same question about the baseball players on the Heritage baseball team. If you surveyed them, what percentage of them think they have a good shot at making pro? Same thing. And what's funny is baseball, they're less likely. And because in football, colleges all have 100 scholarships, the big colleges. And so there's 100 there's 25 per year per team that are getting scholarships in baseball. They have like 20 partial scholarships that they pass out. So far few players move on in baseball than they do in football. Um, But they both have the same level of delusion. Um, Okay. So it's not a race thing. It's a kid thing. I've never once said, hey, do this drill, because if you do, you're going to make it to the major league. <laughs> Any player ever told me there, oh, I'm like, yeah. You know who, like, you know, Najee Harris, who's now playing for Alabama, is the best high school coach I've ever played against. You know, that guy maybe could make it, maybe, to the NFL. Because guess what? At Alabama, he plays some of the time because they've got nine other running backs just as good as him. And he's by far the best high school player to play around here for 20 years. So that's, that's what okay. that looks like. I, so, so it's a kid I, thing. It's, it's a kid. It's not a race thing. And this thing about no, how, yeah, uh, how minority there's a, cause there's this thing floating out there that minorities are more inclined to play football because it's a, it's, it's a way out and, and the white kids don't, don't need that uh, option. And, and so they're, the white kids are dropping out faster than the black kids. I think the people that are dropping out are are bad at looking at statistics because they they then put them in soccer and cycling and all these other things that or have just cheerleading. Yeah, exactly. It's like, yeah, it's dangerous to do stuff. But you know, it like I see, <laughs> I see, like I said, I see cyclists all the time fall and break their head. They're like, ah, that's what are you going to do? And it's like, well, how come that's, that's fine. But, but doing football is terrible. Um, so the, the argument for me, for team sports, for football in specific is that we're coming together to work hard together. It's more about us, you know, than it is about any individual. And that's the way I've always coached. And, I think most of the coaches are around coach that way. All right. Um, so let's sort of wrap up with, with the question about, and because it's the one thing I think that's at least semi-topical, um, 
right right now re- revolving race and and sports and politics and that's that's the flag kneeling thing yeah um do you do you see a, is there a difference in the attitudes between the two schools in regards to kneeling for the flag or the anthem? Uh, well, there might be. So let's let's back up to the fact that it started here in San Francisco, right? Um, and so it was pretty apparent and in the news and the talking points here. And very early on our football team got invited to go to Levi stadium to a 49ers game as the high school team. And they do that. Right. And they, they bring us in and they show us on TV and put our name as Corbin and all that. And that happens. And as we were discussing the planning for that, I said, Hey, we better talk about this because it's at the forefront of the conversation. I mean, this was in the very first four or five weeks when Kaepernick did. And I said, because the last thing we want is to ESPN showing, you know, a bunch of our kids kneeling. And I'm not, I was not opposed to them making that statement. I didn't feel like our kids should be part of the narrative. That was too much for them, especially that early in the process. Because I think this was even before Trump and all of that, right? So it's just early in the process. Um and so what we did is we actually, we weren't even on the field for the anthem. We were walking up to our seats. Um, most of the time at games, uh, we're not on the field for the anthem. Some of that is the timing of the way the high school game goes. We're walking back from the locker room. Um, I've not seen players kneel. And I've not heard a player yet discuss it. I've heard a lot of grownups discuss it, whether it's the coaches or the people around it. But I've never seen anybody from our team or any of the other teams make a statement one way or the other. And I think it's because coaches don't like distractions. And if it were up to the NFL owners and coaches, clearly they would prefer they didn't, which doesn't mean that they don't believe in what they're kneeling for because, you know, the most frequent comment I hear is they don't even know what they're kneeling for. No, they absolutely know what they're kneeling for. I know what they're kneeling for. If you say that comment means you don't know what they're kneeling for. And I happen to think that the entire point of the kneeling is a good point, but football coaches or all coaches in general want to avoid distractions. It's like, okay, well, let's make our statement later. Right now we got to win a football game. And if we're, we're doing it, then our mind isn't where we want it to be. And that may be shallow, but it's also true, right? It's like, I if a kid really had a statement to make, then write an article, do a YouTube blog. There's there's ways to go about it, but you know what that especially you know what that sort game. of sounds like, right? I mean, that sounds okay. That sounds like, um, and I'm not I'm not condemning it, and and I I get the point, but I, yeah. it sounds a little bit like again going back to this thing of. We're okay with you protesting as long as you do it in a manner in a way that we're 100% okay with. And and how dare you get uppity and and protest in a manner that that we're not 100% comfortable with. So you can't and I agree with that as a as a as somebody who's watching and is uncomfortable. When you're a football coach winning a game that only 500 people in the world care about and nobody else cares about is more important than 
us going to the moon. So it's like it's the this unique approach of how important this is relative to how important it should be. But so to me, when you have coaches who don't want it, it has nothing to do. It could be white kids protesting food stamps and we would be the same thing. It's like, I don't care what you're protesting. You're protesting Trump. You're doing whatever your protest is. Not right now. We're so so I, that's, I, that's, I get that. But I think also there's a part yeah. of me that says, no, you know what? Um, if, if this were 1944 and, or whatever, and we, we knew that Jews were being killed by the millions you know, some things are not more important. I, I, and even to the football coach, there's, there's life is like, we always, I, I don't know uh, for sure, but you always see the movies, how, you know, this is bigger than football, you know, someone gets sick or someone dies or, or something like that. And I think, I think we have to ask ourselves sometimes is, is what they're protesting, which is really is about, you know, police brutality and, and just overall racial inequality in this country, you know, aren't, Aren't there some protests that do deserve that distraction? And and isn't it at the end of the day, isn't it just the game? And well, it depends on what it, if you're depending into if you're talking about NFL versus high school. Because the one thing is an NFL protest does raise awareness and drive discussion. Three high school kids kneel, nobody notices, nobody cares. Uh, two, you'll never convince any football coach that anything, including breathing, is more important than winning a football game. That's just the way we're wired. Maybe you're Canadian, so if you have to think in terms <laughs> of hockey, but but it's the that's just a natural predisposition. And again, it's like if there's a fire, it's like all right. I mean, and we actually last year we had the fires in the Bay Area, and the smoke was so bad, and they canceled the game. And everybody's reaction was, I cannot believe they're canceling the game. Nobody was worried about the people whose house were on fire. That's just the natural way those that, that culture is wired, is there's really nothing more important. I'm not saying that's correct, and it certainly isn't true, but it is the way that it's experienced. I, so I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to ask, and I'm a little afraid to ask him this question because I think it might get a little open-ended, but... Do you think sports is one of the better blending grounds of of or of of race and and that conversation because sports is the closest thing we have to a true meritocracy that Absolutely. Okay. I mean, I think it's it's the most important thing and especially because, you know, if we went back to, you know, talking about World War II and the draft and whatever, now you're forcing people together and they have a common goal that, yes, you know, us winning this game is really important, but us not dying on, on the beaches of Normandy probably maybe exceeds that, right? This is, again, the football coach barely conceding that. But, but certainly when you put people in that experience, if they – if you, you put two people from completely different backgrounds that start out hating each other because of racial prejudice and they live through Normandy and they move on and eventually at some point they'll begrudgingly say, hey, you know, that guy's not so bad, right? I think that's a natural occurrence because we don't have that kind of like military now is primarily volunteer for poor people, right? That's the reality of that is that sports is the is the way that people come together 
and experience that on obviously a much smaller level because at the end when we lose we don't die we we move on with our lives but it does bring to people together for a common goal right and kind of blends those but but more than that is it because from the top down there's an understanding that whether you're white or black it doesn't matter the the better player is going to be on the field so here's this is interesting this happened last week in sports um you know and especially with hard knocks being the browns are a team that a lot of people know because a lot of people watch hard knocks and i found it really interesting last week baker mayfield comes in he saves the day and it was one of the first times that we're like hey we need to bench the black quarterback for the white quarterback even though the black quarterback's probably a better leader and a better overall person, but the white quarterback's better at football. That really flipped the script on the way that conversation used to go. And I found it interesting because and I didn't know a lot about Tyrod Taylor, but watching through Hard Knocks, the guy seems to be the kind of guy that you would want to be the leader of your football yeah. team. But after watching a couple of weeks of football, it, seems obvious that Baker Mayfield's the better quarterback to win a game. And so I found that to be the exact answer to what you're just talking about. That That's taking the expectations and flipping it completely on um, the way it used to happen. And I haven't, I haven't paid attention to sports radio uh, over the last three or four days. Um, but that's, and that's actually the first time that the white black, that they were even mentioned in that manner. Sure. Well, with that right there, there's your answer for how'd you get progress, right? Right? Is that's the first time we didn't even occur to anybody to mention it because we're no longer living in the society that when a quarterback is good, that they go, well, he's black. Can he be a good quarterback? Can he? And, can he be a leader? Can he learn the playbook? Yeah, and I mean, and I don't, I don't know when that stopped being true. And it certainly, I'm sure, is still true with the people that are the, you know, the R9s and R10s, but whatever. Like I said, those people are never changing. But the people that are an R5 no longer say that mm. because it's no longer in question. That right there, that, you know, to bring it full circle, that's, that's my optimistic viewpoint of the way this works. People are no longer saying, hey, is that guy good enough to be the leader? Because, yes, we've seen it time and time again that guy is good enough to be the leader. That's a stupid question. Right. And I think we learned in our culture of football, we learned that a long time ago before society caught up. Yeah. I think, I think we'll have made it when those guys or gals don't have to work twice as hard to, to get there. Um, cause I, I, I get that. Um, you know, the women, as you know, we've known some women, leaders in business that had to be, that had to work twice as hard, um, you know, to get to the same place that the white guy was just sort of chilling at. Right. Sure. Um, so yeah, so I think we'll have my, I guess my goalpost for making it to keep on with the sports theme is that when they don't have to work harder, um, to, to get to that, to that place, um, We'll, we'll be a much better uh, society. But there we are. Alan, that went by quick. Awesome. It did go by you quick. Did. We barely even argued. 
<laughs> yeah, like you said, you're starting to think like me. And too. I don't think I swore one time. That's got to be a record. That's, that's got to be a record. Let's not break <laughs> it. All right, Alan. Um, thank you very much for attending. And uh, I, I appreciate your input. And let's do this again. You got it. And that, ladies and gentlemen, wraps up this week's episode with Alan Job. Thanks, Alan. Uh, there will be no cultural segment this week because apparently I am cultureless and I have no friends with culture. It's sad. So if any of you out there want to expose me to anything, I'm constantly in search of new ideas, new experiences, and most importantly, new foods. So uh, hit me up. We are on iTunes now. So if you do a search for Tilting at Windmills, uh, on iTunes podcasts or Mike Donahue, you will find us and please subscribe or hit our website at tilt at windmills.com. Thanks everyone.